Hi there. You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel, and welcome to episode 25. It is my turn to pick an album, and so I dug deep in the vault to share some more fun stories with Abigail as we discuss So by Peter Gabriel. This is an album that I discovered while on a great vacation in California, so hopefully I'll share a few of those stories along the way. And then Abigail, you got to pick the beer. What did we settle in on? I did get to pick the beer, and since you were so so kind to me in your selections. For the last episode, when we discussed my album, I decided to throw you a little bone today in my selections. So we are drinking three selections from Maui Brewing in Kihei, Maui, Hawaii. Obviously, we're not in Hawaii at the moment. We are still social distancing because of Omicron. So we separately went to the total wines in our respective cities and picked up these selections. But the first one we're going to be drinking is called Waimea Red. And this is described as Brewed with New Zealand, Waimea, and Mosaic Cryo hops, this red ale showcases notes of pine, citrus, and tropical fruits. The balance of hoppy and malt character creates roundness and balance. Where's my hammock? So here we go. Another discussion of pine, I guess. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did I just trigger you with that? (laughs) No. I noticed this one says tropical fruits and doesn't have the tropical fruits listed. The other two, when you say you were kind to me, you did pick a couple of hazy IPAs. But in defense of yourself, I noticed they were the fruits that you like, which are the tropical (laughs) fruits. That's true. So I think you're going to do okay. You got to keep a balance. You know, if you get the style, I get the flavor profile. It's funny you picked a brewery from Hawaii. I I didn't make this connection, but part of the reason I'm going to talk about this album is a trip I made to California. And it's funny. I just got triggered when we started talking about Hawaii because when I got off the airplane, Uncle Steve picked me up at the airport and he took me immediately out for pizza. Because I had flown, you know, we go East Coast to West Coast, you gain hours. So right, like it's eight o'clock LA time. It's like 11 o'clock on my body clock. And he drags me to a pizza joint and he goes, have you ever had Hawaiian pizza? And I go, no, I've never had Hawaiian pizza. And so he orders Hawaiian pizza and I'm totally ill prepared for (laughs) pineapple and Canadian bacon on a pizza, you know, but, uh, and I know that's a raging debate to this day. And that's how I knew I was going to be in for a good trip because that was the beginning of a whole bunch of great weirdness in Los Angeles. It is a strangely controversial pizza topping to this day. (laughs) Yes, I know. You hear about it more now than you did then as a controversy. I know. But I don't think it was as common back then. This was a really weird thing because it was a California sort of thing. And it's popped up all over the country now. But back then, I, I was just like, oh, that's weird. And I had it and I liked it. I didn't have any issues with it. It was. It took some getting used to. Yeah, you see it all the time. My perfect pizza is pineapple and jalapeno. See, that's a good combo. Thank you. Sweet and spicy. I think one of the beers we're going to have today also has pineapple in it. So prepare yourself for that. Oh, I'll be fine. So uh, my initial impressions of this one, it is a red ale. I poured it into a glass so I could see the color, but it is a, definitely a red ale and it drinks very much like a classic red ale. Yeah. Just slightly malty. It's a, maybe a little less malty than some of them. Little bit of a hint of the hoppy piney thing at the end, but you have to kind of sit on it before it gets there. Like it, it comes up a little bit late, but it's there and it's not very strong and it's a very smooth, easy to drink beer. So it's a pretty good beer. I hate to do this to you because we're going to have to name drop our good friend Pete Co. a little earlier in the episode than we normally do. But when I cracked the can, I got an 
overwhelming piney aroma. Oh my god! And I know you did not. <laughs> of course I didn't. Every time we have a beer with pine, I don't get the pine. I take that back. I taste that piney hint on this one. Yeah. Okay. I think the last time I didn't get what I'm getting with this one. And that's why we mm-hmm. had such a long discussion last time about that. But this one, I taste it. And it's maybe because the other flavors in the beer are not overwhelming. That really fruity one we had, it was supposed to have pine in it. Yeah. I got all fruit and no pine. And that's because, like we always say, I'm relying on taste buds because, as we know, I can't smell. People are still telling me that they can't get that out of their heads, by the way. It's very catchy. The more we play it, the more we've got earworms all over America. We're taking over the world. Taking over the world, one anosmia at a time. So, yeah, anyway, this is a very easy to drink, very smooth beer, very much of the category. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of red ales because I find that most of them have a very similar taste. And this is in that category. It's an above average one. I like it. I am really, really enjoying this. It surprised me, actually. When I read malty on the can, I tend to think of malty as also being sweet. And I think this tastes malty without being sweet. So it's a very unique malt experience that I'm getting from this. I can definitely taste the flavor of the grain, but it's not sweet in any way. I wonder if part of that is that the pininess cancels out the sweet, but I taste malt. I taste pine. It's not sweet. It's not overly hoppy. The hoppiness doesn't linger. It's a really unique, clean tasting beer. And I really, really like it. Yeah, it's a really balanced beer. It is. Balanced is a good word. One of the reasons that red ales don't jump out at me is because they do tend to be maltier and sweeter and smoother. Yeah. And this one's got a little bite at the end, that little pininess at the end that really does contrast a little bit of sweetness at the front. So it's not overly sweet and it's not overly hoppy. It's like right down the middle of the road. The maltiness is early and the hoppiness is a little later. Yes. So it's really two flavors stacked on top of each other every sip. So it's, yeah, it's a very good, interesting beer. I like it. Yeah, I'm enjoying it very much. All right. Well, tell me about Peter Gabriel, dad. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the album and how I discovered it. So I took what I would consider my first adult vacation in March of 1987. I was a third year medical student. We had a weird schedule at UF back then. We used to end our second year at spring break, and then we would have our spring break week, and then we would start the hospital wards and our hospital ward experience would go from March to March which is unusual. Most of the medical schools at the time, you had two full years of school and then you started in the wards in July. So this is my spring break before I go on the hospital wards. And I go out to visit Uncle Steve in California. Who has made an appearance on the podcast. Not an appearance. We've mentioned him many times. We've mentioned him many times. (laughs) He's a friend of mine from high school who I did all my artistic endeavors as a high school student with Uncle Steve. He was a filmmaker and an animator. We were both writers. We worked on the magazine together. We've told those stories in the Beatles episode. And so he went to school in California and was at this point an animator in California. I obviously went to medical school. So we diverged on our career paths, right? Having left high school and gone to college. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was divergent. But I still had an interest in all that stuff. Anyway, he invited me to come out and visit. And so for the first time ever, I got a plane ticket. And that's why I consider it my first adult vacation. And it was a spectacular trip. I mean, he took me to see the basic list of things you would take somebody to see if they came to visit LA. So I got to see the Queen Mary and the Spruce Goose, which were next to each other down in Long Beach. The Spruce Goose is no longer there. I've never heard of that. (laughs) It's a wooden plane that was built by Howard Hughes. It flew one time. 
And now it's been relocated to Washington State, I believe. And the dome that it sat in is used for a film set. In fact, they filmed, I think, one of the Batman films in there where they could build Gotham City inside this gigantic dome. But I got to see those things. We went to Universal Studios tour. We did the Disneyland thing. Both very cool. He took me for a hike in Malibu. Just a spectacular trip. But the one thing I remember is that no matter where we went, it took 45 minutes. In fact, <laughs> I made a joke at one point. When you go to the grocery store to get a half a gallon of milk, does it take you 45 minutes to get there? Because it seemed like every time we got in the car, we drove 45 minutes to get to something. But the other thing about that was that he had discovered this album, So, by Peter Gabriel. And that was what he was repeating in his car. Oh. So we played that tape the entire time I was in Los Angeles. Every time we got in the car and went 45 minutes, you got to hear the album once. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's yeah, that's exactly right. I must have heard the album 50 times that week. That's so funny. And I really, really loved it. And it's weird because the album was released in 1986. And I think the first single, if I'm not mistaken, was Sledgehammer which had this amazing video with it. I'm looking right now. Yeah, Sledgehammer was the first single. It was released in April of 1986. So this is a year later, which means that video had been on MTV. It's an amazing video. In fact, at one time, I think it was, and probably still is, the most played music video of all time on MTV. Really? It's a stunning video. Wow. It's a stop motion animation. And if you've never seen it, you need to go watch it. I, I have it already prepped to put in the webpage when we put this episode up. Perfect. It's a Amazing. Yeah, I've never seen it. And I remember loving the video and the song is kind of a funky song, but I didn't make that purchase that I would typically do with an album where, you know, like a single like that and a video like that, that would have really grabbed my attention. Something I would have gone out and purchased. I did not buy this album. So it wasn't until on this trip that I really got exposed to the music and got to hear the album over and over and over again. And I just loved it. I mean, I bought it mm -hmm. immediately when I went home and really, really to this day, still love this album. To me, it does have an 80s vibe to it. Oh, for sure. A lot of synthesizer and electronic music on this that makes it of its time, but it holds up anyway. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you'll listen to an album from the 80s and you go, man, this sounds so much like the 80s and you'll have a negative response to that. I don't have a negative response to this one. And I think it's in part because he was mostly a percussionist. He, he plays a wide variety of instruments. He came from the band Genesis, you may or may not know. At some point, he overlapped with Phil Collins. Phil Collins played the drums on Genesis before he ever left. He left in 1975 and started his own solo career. And so most of his music is percussion driven. He's always had a fascination with African rhythms and sort of South American rhythms. Definitely hear that. And I think the reason I like this album so much is because that's what really drives the album. The electronic keyboard stuff that sounds so synth and so 80s doesn't distract me as much because the rhythm sections are so good. Yeah. One other fascinating fact about this, it got nominated obviously for a ton of Grammys including Album of the Year. Oh, wow. And he lost to Paul Simon's Graceland. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's the year he lost. And so I only bring that up because it was two albums in the same year that relied a lot on kind of world music. Yeah. And world beats in the exact same Grammy category in the exact same year. So interesting. And I'll say another thing about Peter Gabriel is he was very active in human rights so he was always a supporter of world music, you know, African and Brazilian music in particular, but he turned that into a lot of work on human rights. He was involved with Amnesty International. He played on a number of their concerts in the 80s, probably one of the more politically active musicians. 
but really not overly outspoken about it. Just did the work, just supported the causes, but didn't grandstand a lot on that. Kind of did it, I don't want to say behind the scenes because it was a very public thing that he was doing, but it never came across as I'm doing this to put it on my resume that I'm doing it and make me look like a good guy to improve my album sales. So the opposite of Bono. I don't know. And I think Bono does the work and talks about it a lot. Yeah. And I don't get the sense he's talking about a lot to promote U2 music as much as he's talking about a lot to get it in the press. So I I don't have a negative connotation about Bono's work in the same field, but I would say he does self-promote it more than Peter Gabriel ever did. Peter Gabriel was quiet about it. He didn't go out and say, look at me, I'm doing this. He just did the work. Mm -hmm. I've always admired that about him as well. So the other thing I want to tell you, because the album title is kind of weird, right? So I'll share this story real quick. When he started his own solo albums in the 70s, he didn't want to give them titles. They were all called Peter Gabriel. And the idea was he pictured it like it was a magazine, like it would be a new issue every year. And so it would have a new cover mm-hmm. photo. The fourth album that he released, there was some confusion about that because I think he may have switched labels at the time. Or maybe it was that it was coming to America and they didn't know anything about this title thing. And so the album ended up being called Security. And I think this may be anecdotal because I couldn't find anything to back this up, but I had always heard that it was because when they sent the tapes over, they had a security tape on it to keep it confidential. And so the label called the album Security. Oh, that's funny. They thought that's what the album title was supposed to be. That's cheeky. I like that though. Yeah, when they released it here with that title on it, he didn't know that was coming until he saw the album and it said security on it because that was not his intent. (laughs) So now the label requires a title and he's going to release this album, his fifth solo album. And so he chose the name So because he said it's more a graphic than a word. It doesn't really mean anything in particular. Right. It's just a strong image on the album. When you look at the album cover, you realize it's just this gigantic S.O. on the cover. And his follow-up albums were called Us and then Up. He was just looking for two-letter words to function as graphics on the covers of his artwork. So, so doesn't mean anything. It doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't have any meaning to the album. It's just there to serve as a graphic on his cover. So... So, <laughs> so you touched on a lot of things I wanted to bring up in my summary of the album. I really like this album, but it took me several listens to get into it. Oh, that sounds familiar. It's very 80s, but I really grew to love that as I listened to it. This album is such an interesting mix of songs that are just classic, normal 80 songs and songs that make me go, Mr. Gabriel, what the hell were you thinking when you wrote this song? I'll get to those songs when we get to them, but there's some very experimental stuff on this album, in my opinion. Absolutely. That was hard for me to get over at first because they're sort of sprinkled throughout. It's not like you've got six songs of normal and then the last three songs are the experimental. They're sprinkled throughout. There is a song on this album that I skip and we will get to it. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But I have to skip it in order to enjoy the album. (laughs) He talks a lot about how long it took him to actually settle on the song order on this album, but he stewed over it. And one of the things that he always hated was that the opening track on side two, In Your Eyes, was always intended to be the last song on the album. But there was an issue with the bass range on that song that it didn't sound good on the inside track of the vinyl. It needed to be out on the outer edge of the vinyl to give the vinyl enough flexibility to absorb the bass track. 
So it was a technical reason that he had to put it as the first track on one of the sides. And so he made it first track on side two. And in later releases of the CD, special edition kinds of things, it got moved to the end. We might run into an issue. Oh, well, I'm going to tell you the order of the songs that you're going to review that and the order to review them. Sorry to tell you that. Didn't realize there was going to be an issue. There's an issue. I love the way we're discovering this right now. <laughs> live. We never, live. we never send each other the track list. No, I didn't even think about it because I didn't even know this story about that or that there were other releases of it where he put this particular song on there until I was reading about the album. Well, having listened to it within your eyes as the closing track, it is a perfect closing track. I can't imagine it anywhere else. Well, it's the opening track of side two. Uh, the final track on the original album is This Is The Picture, which also functions as a decent closing track, the way it ends. It's all right, but... Wow, you had a different experience than I did. Wow, okay, what a disaster. No, it's fine. We're going to talk song by song. I think I probably had a better experience than you did then. <laughs> I don't know. I'm used to this being the order that it's always been in. Well, I'll play the songs in the order that you tell me to, but I will also chime in about the order I listen Okay. To them in because that's how I prepped the album. Other things I wanted to touch on. I knew of Genesis. I don't really know Genesis until I went and looked this up. I had no idea Peter Gabriel was in Genesis. Like Genesis to me is Phil Collins. Sure. And the only reason I know that and the only reason I know Phil Collins is the same way many people in my generation know Phil Collins. And that is that he wrote the soundtrack to Tarzan. <laughs> right, right. So that's how I know Phil Collins and that's how I know Genesis. Also, what I consider to be the conversation we had that cemented that we needed to start this podcast was about Phil Collins. Do you remember what I'm referring to? I absolutely do. We were in the car. We might've been driving up to see your grandfather pop up. We were. Yeah. I don't remember why I asked this question, but the question was, Who's the only artist to play in both the uh, British and American stages during the Live Aid concert in 1985? And I kept giving you clues and you kept guessing wrong. And it took us down another rabbit hole of a conversation. And, and then we would backtrack to where we were. And then you guess another artist. And then ultimately, we discussed that it was Phil Collins, who flew at the time on the Concord SST supersonic plane, flew from London, I guess Heathrow was where that landed, to New York mm -hmm. and got shuttled to Philly and was able to perform in Wembley Stadium and then also at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia at the time. Mm -hmm. And so we got all done that conversation. It took We talked for like an hour. Yeah. And I said, and there was the pilot episode of our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you said we should have recorded that. <laughs> should have recorded that. Yes. And that was over Phil Collins. There was one other thing, speaking of that, just real quick. The reason most people know Genesis with Phil Collins is because they were also darlings of MTV. Mm. And also at that time, Phil Collins had a couple of great solo albums and had one of his songs appear on the soundtrack of Risky Business, the Tom Cruise movie. That was part of our conversation. Yeah, that was one of the clues I was giving yeah. you to try to guess Phil Collins. But anyway, they had a big hit in America that went to number one. I think it was Susudio. And that got knocked out of the number one slot when Peter Gabriel's song Sledgehammer knocked it out at number one. Oh, wow. How cool. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? By the way, that was the only number one hit from Genesis ever. And also the only number one from Peter Gabriel ever. Oh, interesting. And wow. one of them knocked the other one out of the chart. Huh. Well, as a result of all that, when I first turned on this album, my first thought was, oh, wow, this sounds like Phil Collins. And then I realized 
no, it doesn't. It sounds like Genesis and Genesis and Phil Collins are so tied together in my mind that I couldn't even separate the fact that Peter Gabriel did sing for Genesis. And so his voice sounds like Genesis, obviously. (laughs) But to me, that was like, oh, it's Phil Collins. No, it's not. It's Genesis. They do sound a lot alike. In fact, when Peter Gabriel left Genesis, they did a whole long search for a replacement for a vocalist before they settled on Phil Collins, who was the drummer in the band, who was actually almost a voice match for Peter Gabriel in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's so funny. So, and the other thing you said about this album, you know, there's a lot of experimental things on this. This is, first of all, it's his best-selling album. It's described as Peter Gabriel's most accessible album. And if you listen Mm -hmm. to the stuff that preceded this, it's way more experimental. So this was his most commercial album. Hmm. Before I get into track one, just a couple more observations in general. Long songs on this album, long intros to songs. And what I found really interesting, most of the songs start with the chorus, which is cool. I don't feel one way or the other about that. It just made picking clips kind of difficult. I can see that clips on this album are very tricky to pick, I'm sure. Yeah, very tricky. The intros, I love the intros. This album has good lyrics, but the music really spoke to me a lot on this album. So I was trying to get like the musical parts that I found interesting, but also the lyrical parts I found interesting. And it's just tricky. So we're going to do our best. But I recommend actually listening to this album because there's a lot in every song. Picking a 30 second to a minute long clip really is not going to capture the songs well on this album in particular. I totally agree. I think this album is worth a listen. You can almost put it on as background. It's very ambient. It's very ambient. It's very ambient. But I will tell you that the lyrics in a lot of ways are very intense. There's a lot of really interesting introspection in the lyrics on this album. Mm -hmm. Even in my least favorite song, when you read about what it's about it's crazy Mm -hmm. what the song Mm -hmm. is about he had some depression and mental health issues around the time that he was writing this album and a lot of that comes through in the lyrics obviously i think the album's worth a listen well shall we get started with track one i guess i need to confirm with you (laughs) that track one is red rain (laughs) yes that is track one red rain all right let's listen to a little bit of red rain well i've seen them is probably my fourth favorite song on the album. Oh, wow. I texted you about this, so you already know this. But the first time I listened to this album was the first time I rode my bike in Gainesville. So I got a bike for Christmas from from Santa Claus. (laughs) Okay, my parents. (laughs) But mom told me it was from Santa Claus. I named my bike Santana because Santa brought her to me. And, you know, I had just gotten my helmet on Monday. It was a Wednesday. I hitched my bike up to my bike rack. After work, I drove to Depot Park, which has like this enormous, I think it's 
20 something mile bike trail. And I put on this album and I started riding my bike. It was the most amazing feeling. It was cold. It was a little chilly out. It was dark. I had my lights on, but it was like pitch black around me. I could really only see like straight in front of me from the light and starting the bike ride on this song. It was just like a transcendental (laughs) like experience. How cool. It's a really beautiful song. I don't have any idea what it's about. I'm not sure I need to. The lyrics are very sensual. And I don't mean that in like a sexy way. I mean, truly they are about sensations. You know, I'm riding my bike. It's a very physical experience. I'm like feeling really in my body in that moment. And I'm listening to this very sensual song. And it's just like an unreal feeling. I mean, there's other songs on this album I like better, but truly one of the most amazing experiences listening to this album was just starting my bike ride on this song. And then... I continued listening to it. I got through like one and a half plays on my bike. And then I came home and took a shower and I listened to this song in the shower. And can I tell you what another amazing experience that was listening to this song in the shower? While you're actually getting rained on. Yeah, while I'm getting rained on. The drums are really powerful. Big sounds in this one. Just a big, powerful song. And I really, really like it. Well, first of all, welcome to the joy of playing albums and different experiences, right? Because I talk yes. about all the time how sometimes <laughs> I play these in, while I'm biking, sometimes while I'm running, sometimes just listening quietly, sometimes with a lyric sheet in front of me. And all those experiences are different. And that's why I do that because there yeah. are definitely albums that the impact is bigger on your bike than it would be if you were just listening at your desk. For sure. The percussion in this was designed to simulate rain, which is really interesting. And in fact, they brought an extra player in to help with that. And so on the symbols, alone, the hi-hat symbols helping simulate rain is Stuart Copeland of the police. So I thought you'd find that interesting. Oh, that is cool. This is based on a dream that he had and he described the dream and it was very weird. I'm not going to do it any justice, but it sounds like he had this dream where it was almost like the parting of the Red Sea. There were two walls of water on either side. And on one side, these little blebs were forming and filling up with what looked like blood. And then they would fall off. And these little people-oid things that were red would walk to the other side and then jump onto that side into the water. Whoa. And so this whole song is just basically based on this weird dream that he had. So when you say, I'm not sure what it's about, I don't know if I need to know. No, it was because it was based on this abstract thing that none of us would ever know about unless he told us, right? But when I read the lyrics, I keep thinking it's a murder scene. Oh, wow. Because there's this line in here. I'm standing up at the water's edge in my dream. This is talking about the dream, right? I cannot make a single sound as you scream. Mm -hmm. I can't be that cold. The ground is still warm to touch as if it's full of blood, right? This place is so quiet, sensing that storm. And then... Red rain is pouring down all over me. And I just feel like, is this a guy who's either committed a murder or has witnessed a murder? Is that the scene he's looking at? Now, I kept reading that into it before I ever knew about the dream. But yeah, like the music is what overwhelms you with this song. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the lyrics are there, but the music is amazing. And now I'll toss it back at you and go opening track of an album. Is it setting the stage for the rest of the album? Definitely. I think this is not to do with the sequencing, but the song itself, it's maybe a little bit of a long intro for an opening track and a long, quiet intro, like it builds. So it starts off really quiet. So for a long time, you're like, what is happening? Did I start the album? Did I forget to press play? But other than that, I think it is a perfect opening track. I don't know if the theme of the song sets the theme for the rest of the album, but I don't know if this album really has a theme in terms of the stories that are being told. But in terms of the music he's producing, it's perfect. It's a big, ambient, powerful 
actually this song you have to listen to in headphones because you have to have that experience of only hearing the music and nothing else in order to get the full impact. But yes, I agree. It is a great opening track. Yeah, I think in an album that is musically driven, Mm -hmm. it's a great opening track. I agree with you. What is her nine songs on this album? And there's no theme lyrically through this album. Right. Yeah, I always thought this was a great opening track. It does. It starts off slow and it builds. So I thought that was an interesting way to start it. Is it the mission statement of the album? I would say yes. I think it really does set the table for the rest of the album. Well, and you said he's a percussionist. This is pure percussion. (laughs) He has a percussion background. It's not the only instrument he plays. He plays some woodwinds. I think he plays the flute. He's a pretty diverse musician. I think rhythm is the thing that was always the most appealing to him, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like he played in Genesis with another drummer. So he wasn't necessarily the drummer in Genesis. You know, he was the front man. And by the way, the stuff that he was involved in with Genesis is way more experimental than the stuff that was produced in the aftermath of him leaving. They became a much more commercial band after Peter Gabriel left. So that's track one. What do you have for track two? <laughs> <laughs> I hate that we have to do this. For track two, I have Sledgehammer. I think you're going to find that only that one thing was moved. Yeah. I think that's what's going to end up happening. But okay, so Sledgehammer, yes. Yes, ma'am. I will allow you to go to Sledgehammer as track two. Saw me around your food cage. My second favorite on the album. This is my first favorite. I love this song. And I knew I had heard it before because that guitar riff, the opening guitar riff is so iconic. I actually think I should play it so that people know what I'm talking about because I guarantee that our listeners, even if they're not familiar with this album or much of Peter Gabriel at all, have heard this opening guitar riff. So I just want to play, or not guitar riff, it's horns. So let's just hear that. I mean, that's just so iconic. Everyone knows that. And yeah, horns and bass, right? Horns and bass. Cool kind of woodwind at the beginning there, too. Yeah, I was saying, I, I'm sure that's Peter Gabriel, right? Because I told you just a moment ago, he plays woodwinds. So that's yeah, probably him yeah. doing that. This song to me is so fun. It's obviously extremely sexual. But to me, it's sexual in like a wholesome way. He's clearly not objectifying this woman. He's like worshiping her, you know? 
So I think it's sexy in like a very wholesome way. It's not dirty. You know, it's sexy, but it's not dirty. No, you can read into every lyric on here as a sort of a sexual innuendo or a phallic symbol or whatever as you read. Right. Open up your fruit cage. I mean, right. <laughs> which is the lyric you played, right? All the lyrics kind of play like that uh, in each of the verses. It's interesting you said this is sexual in a wholesome kind of way. Last time we talked, there was a song where the, the narrator of the song was calling somebody an angel and you were like, um, Oh, you know that he's putting her on a pedestal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and here's the and now you're having the first conversation about this song, but that's fair. I just want to point that out because we did have a discussion, a long discussion about that song, "Angel yeah. of Mine," on the last album we did. I don't know. To me, it's different. The image of a honeybee pollinating a flower to me is different from like a man calling a woman his angel. To me, that's different categories. I'm just saying that putting somebody up on a pedestal and calling her an angel seems more wholesome to me than saying, open up your fruit cage. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a tough call for me. But anyway, all that being said, that's exactly what this song is about. It's completely overtly I shouldn't say overtly, but it's very cleverly just full of sexual innuendo, but it's amazingly written. It's amazingly performed. Mm. It comes across like 60s funk or soul with the big horn section and the big bass guitar in it. It's just a great song. And when you watch the video of this, if you've never seen it, I'm shocked. Well, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm going to play this opening riff because even like... Even if you don't know Peter Gabriel, nothing about old Genesis, nothing about Peter Gabriel's other albums. It's hard to believe that if you're living in the United States, you don't have some recollection of this song. Maybe the younger yeah. you are, the less that would be the case. This is such an iconic song. It is. That it's like a almost a cultural touchstone that most people are going to have some knowledge of. But the thing that probably drives that more than anything is that music video. And so please take an opportunity to go watch that because it is one of the most amazingly produced videos in the history of MTV. And as an animation fan, that's the thing that always caught me about it. Yeah. You know, we've had that conversation before about videos that were animated. I always loved them. You know, those animated ones that had a consistent look to them. Hmm. When you watch this video, very simple concept that just is amazing to watch. So hmm. I feel like most people in the United States would have some knowledge of this particular song. But despite all that, it's still my favorite song on the album. It is obviously the biggest hit. Yeah. You know, you listen to it and you're like, well, that's the obvious choice, but it has to be the choice for me. It, it's just, yeah. to me, the most amazing song on the album. So this is my favorite. Should we move on to track three? Depends on what you're calling. <laughs> <laughs> what are you calling track three? I have track three as Don't Give Up. I'm with you. That's what okay, was on great. the CD that I purchased <laughs> in 1987 was Don't Give Up. And by the way, the version I listened to on Spotify is a 2012 remaster. So it's definitely, that's the reason that it's different. This ended up being one of the singles on this album. I think there were five singles on this album, by the way. This was the third single. It was released in October of 1986. This was a single? This was a single. Kate Bush is the woman who sings backup. And there's a great story. It was supposed to be Dolly Parton. He wanted Dolly Parton to sing this part oh, that wow. Kate Bush sang. And she turned him down. She didn't want to do it. And so then Kate Bush did it. And then years later, Dolly Parton felt bad about it. So she invited him on to a show that she was doing and their schedule didn't work and he wasn't able to do it. Oh, no. So they're destined to never work together. Dolly Parton and Peter Gabriel. But anyway, yeah, this was the third single released in October of 1986 with uh, Kate Bush as the background vocal. So why don't you share a little clip of it? Don't give up. You still have us. 
clip because this is my least favorite is it really? song i cannot stand this song i skip it how about that i swear that i skip it not only is it slow not only is she singing in a high register that really doesn't do her voice any favors it is so on the nose the lyrics are so obvious and not clever at all and i i didn't look up a story for this song i assumed it was a parent talking to a suicidal child. That was just the vibe I got. But the lyric, don't give up because you have friends. It's so shallow and it's so surface level to like what a person who is feeling suicidal needs to hear. I just do not care for this song whatsoever. The song is about the way Pierre Gabriel described it. It was about discontent about the unemployment during Margaret Thatcher's time as the premier in England. <laughs> what? And it's basically uh, whittled down to a narrative about an unemployed man and his lover. And so, yes, he's suicidal or he's lost and he doesn't think it's ever going to get better. And, and she's saying, no, don't give up. But the background of why he wrote that had more to do with politics than you might imagine. I don't get any of the politics when I hear no, the song. No, you can't I just, hear I get, any of that. I get the personal story, but his reason for going down that theme had to do with unemployment issues in England. And it's interesting, you know, we talked to Matt Carlson about Billy Bragg and it was that kind mm -hmm. of similar thing. Billy Bragg's music apparently was more overtly political and edgy about the same topic. And here he used that as an inspiration to write a real personal story about two people. It's not my least favorite. I have a very specific reason for my least favorite. The one thing I do like about this is that there's this sort of dueling. It's not a duet in the classic sense, right? Yeah. There's two perspectives. It's two points of view of the same subject matter. Right. And so when he sings, and you didn't play a clip of him singing, he's the depressed guy and he's singing about all the trouble he's having. And then she's coming in as a supportive person saying, no, it's going to be okay. You're just going to chill out. Don't give up. It's going to be fine. And I always like that perspective thing because it's a different way to do a duet. I agree with you. It, and I do like that the music is a little experimental. That makes it slow and it makes it long, but it is an interesting uh, music scape that's been created to tell the story. So it's not my least favorite. It's obviously toward the bottom in a nine song album. It's clearly in the bottom third, right? I agree with you about the non-duet duet. The part that Peter Gabriel is singing, the lyrics in those parts are quite nuanced. And I think a good representation of how someone in this situation feels and vocalizing that. But it's the supportive role that I just can't get over those lyrics. They're so inane and shallow to me. It's a simple repetitive chorus. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. I agree with you on that. The problem is her lyrics only work in the context of his lyrics. And you didn't play a clip. Um, I never thought I could fail was one of the closing lines of one of the verses. I never thought I could fail. Then And then she comes and says, don't give up. It has a little bit more power after he sings than it does in isolation the way you played it. But those lyrics could have been more nuanced. I, I agree with you. The chorus could have been a little more nuanced as opposed to on the nose like you suggested. Right. If someone is so hopeless that they're contemplating suicide, telling them don't give up is not going to do anything for them. Saying, you have friends. You have friends. Yeah. Yeah. I know I have friends. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> Can I ask you to go back into time to say 1986 when maybe this wasn't a subject <laughs> a lot of people wrote about? That's fair. No, that's fair. The other thing about it is it's a really interesting song for its time. There's a, a several songs on here that deal with mental health and psychology. 
because he was dealing with some of those issues at the time. Mm -hmm. I think he was either on the verge of a divorce or had just gotten divorced. And some of that's reflected in the lyrics on this album. And those are tough things that he's writing about in an interesting way that maybe weren't necessarily covered in that kind of way in 1986. So, All right. I'll give you credit for that. Where's the verse where she goes, find a therapist. That's the only thing that will help. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Where's the suicide hotline number in the middle of this song? How come it didn't appear on the 2022 remaster or whatever? We're doing this <laughs> the songs were all out of order. All right. All right. Let's move on. Oh, no. Let's rate this beer. Let's rate this beer. Yes, ma'am. I thoroughly enjoyed this beer. When we do cans like this during recordings, I don't often finish them, but you know, I'm like two sips away from finishing this one. Whoa, careful now. I know. Delicious, clean, malty, but not sweet, piney and hoppy at the end, but not overwhelmingly so, doesn't linger too long. And I'm going to give it a 4.0. Wow. That's a spectacular rating from Abigail. It is. Everything you said, I agree with. It's balanced would be the only other word I would use. It splits two flavor profiles very nicely. So I'm going to give it a solid 3.75. Oh, and by the way, this is a limited release. All the three beers we're drinking today are limited release. So they are not the core beers of Maui Brewing. What do we got next? What are you pulling out next? The next one we are cracking open is called Pono Life. And this is a hazy India pale ale brewed with local passion fruit. There is a, a description on the can I would like to read. This crushable, fruit-forward, hazy session IPA is brewed with local passion fruit, a.k.a. Lily Koi. Koi? Lily Koi? It's the Hawaiian word for passion fruit, I assume. And a blend of tropical New Zealand motueka and citrusy floral citra cryo hops. Built in collaboration with our Ohana from Roadhouse Brewing Co. Kick back, enjoy a few, and live Pono. And Roadhouse Brewing Co., which is the collaboration, is in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Oh, how about that? You and I had beer in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We did while we were shopping for a cell phone for me. Did you Snake River Brewing? Is that where we went when we were there? I think we did. We could check the untapped. I will do that momentarily. First, I'm going to sample my Pono Life. Definitely smells like an IPA. What? You wouldn't know that because... I suffer from this is rough when we're on zoom and we don't have just the buttons in front of us. I know I was talking to a friend of mine the other night and they said, Abigail really likes pressing those buttons now. And I said, yeah, I gotta, I gotta take it away from her. Excuse me. I am just as much a host of this podcast as you are, sir. Shout out to my friend, Megan. Thanks Megan for calling Abigail out on button pushing. Megan, watch your back. Whoa. Sleep with one eye open, Megan. Oh, my God. <laughs> Relax, Megan. I won't tell where you live. Uh, this is wonderful. Oh, wow. Wow. What? Yeah, it is. You're like shocked. You picked it out. Crushable. Yes. Fruit forward. Absolutely. Super passion fruit. Again, the hops don't linger, which I personally am a huge fan of. But you can taste them. But you can taste them. But it's really, I mean, it's predominantly passion fruit. That's a good one. I really enjoy this. This might be another can completion. Ooh, I hope you don't have anywhere to go tonight. All right. Well, while I'm enjoying my Pono life, let's move on to track four. What do you got for track four? I have a little song called That Voice Again. That is track four. This is the last song on side one of the album. And so you heard it in the order that it was meant to be heard in 1986. Perfect. Let's hear it. Ooh. 
hard to pick a clip for because I love the opening so much and I wanted to include the opening but I wanted to get a little bit of the chorus so I couldn't do it from the opening or else we'd have like a minute and a half long clip this is my third favorite on the album this was on the cusp this is my number four song on the album it's clearly about a man who has mental health issues that are ruining his relationship or maybe a new relationship he is trying to pursue but I think an equally fair interpretation and before I like sat down with the lyric sheet The interpretation I had in my head was that he had a deceased partner. And so he's trying to start a new relationship and he's feeling guilty about starting a new relationship. And so he's hearing the voice of his deceased partner coming to him and making him feel guilty about it. I don't think that is what is actually happening. I think he just has, I don't want to say schizophrenia. I don't think he's actually literally hearing voices in his head, but I think it's the metaphorical demons that are haunting him, that are preventing him from really developing this relationship with this woman. So a couple of things, right? If you compare the lyrics on this song to the last song, two songs about somebody who's struggling with some sort of mental health issue. This one's way more powerful than the last one, right? Yes. A hundred percent. So When I listened to it without the lyric sheet, again, I had a different response, sort of like you did. But in my response, it was that he had something he was trying to pursue. And that voice that he was hearing was the significant other trying to impede on that. Hear that voice again. You can't do that. You're not good enough. Oh. But I always thought that was an external factor. Oh. When I sat down with the lyric sheet, what I realized is, no, it's entirely the opposite. It's his internal voice. It's his own judgmental sort of self-doubt creeping in. You know, I want to do this. And here comes that voice again. It tells me I can't. Right. And that's coming from inside of me, not from somebody else in my world. That's in my own head. It's such a brilliantly written song. It is. And it's so much more nuanced than the last one. (laughs) Yes. Let me say, if you went in and took the last one and removed the chorus, if you just listened to what he was struggling with in the previous song, without the person coming in saying, well, we're here. We're here for you. Yeah. I agree with you. This one almost shows you why the last song was weaker. But I also get the feeling... and. It's because of the depth of the lyrics in this one, the shallowness of the lyrics in the last one, and the difference in the nuance. The last one to me felt definitely like he was singing about a person that was not him. He was telling a story. In this one, it sounds like he is talking about himself. Like, I believe he has felt these things. I didn't believe he felt the things in the last song. I believe he has felt these things in this song. 
the lyrics make me believe that he has actually experienced these feelings. Whereas in the last one, I wasn't convinced of that due to the shallowness of the lyrics. Due to the shallowness of the lyrics that he didn't even sing. Even his parts, you know, I was taught to fight, taught to win. I never thought I could fail. That's pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot of metaphor in that, you know? And I don't want to dwell on the last song, but I just think that the simplicity of the chorus ruins the complexity of the verse in that song. We don't have that issue with song four because there's nothing weak about any of it. We've had between us three or four different interpretations, one by listening to it without the lyric sheet in front of us. We had another one when we took a deep dive and dove into the lyrics. That's very complex. It was pretty easy to know what the last song was about. Yeah. It's very hard to really know all the nuance in this song. So that's track four. Anything else on that one? I No. Great song. That takes us to... Track Track five. five. And this is where we diverge. (laughs) This is where we diverge. So for me, track five is Mercy Street. But in the original version of the album that you heard, track five is In Your Eyes. I can almost bet what's going to happen here is that In Your Eyes was just moved from this slot to the end and everything else is going to be in order. So we're going to do it the way the album was released in 86. And I'm going to have you play In Your Eyes. to me is Genesis. (laughs) This song sounds the most like Genesis of anything on the album. This is the Genesis though, from like the eighties that, you know, the Phil Collins Genesis. Yeah. This is so eighties, but in such a beautiful way, definitely has some world rhythms driving it. If I didn't have two such spiritual experiences with red rain, this would probably be my fourth favorite on the album. It is very closely matched with Red Rain. Actually, the opening made me think of another iconic 80s song that I would like to play for you. Is this the Abigail Hummel School of Speaking (laughs) Smartly About Music? Yes, it is. And thank you for getting my title correct. I have a sticky note up here to remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really cute. (laughs) I didn't want to screw it up this time. That's very sweet. So let me play you um, another song that the opening of In Your Eyes made me think of. Class is in session.
obviously that's another very iconic opening riff, but the part before the riff comes in, I could see you didn't really identify what that song was until the opening licks of the riff came in. Well, no, I did. But what I was doing was evaluating. I was like, first of all, nothing is more 80s than Toto. Of course. Secondly, I was making a mental note to float the idea of Straight No Chaser for next year's Christmas special because of the use of Toto in the 12 Days of Christmas. That's where my brain went. That's why you like you look like you didn't know what was going on. It was because I, yeah. <laughs> I was cataloging things in my brain. But no, I agree with you. It's the- an opening that is world rhythms for a long opening before the music really kicks in. I hear the opening of that song and I just think, oh, just like Africa, just like Africa. Almost too on the nose. Well, yes. The fact that Africa is called Africa and uses music inspired by African music is a little on the nose. My point was that Toto was doing it in a song that they called Africa. And I won't use the word cultural appropriation to discuss that, but I would say that they went, oh, I'm going to write a song called Africa and I'm going to use African rhythms. What I appreciate about the Peter Gabriel album is that he used those rhythms to tell different stories. First of all, this is an amazing love song talking about the Peter Gabriel song in your eyes. There's some discussion when you read about what inspired him to write this, whether it's about a person or whether it's about a relationship with God, which I find interesting. But the fact that you so endure Yuso Endor, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's a Senegalese artist who does the backup at the end of this. I should play that. Let me play a little bit of that. Peter Gabriel always wanted this to be the end of the album for that reason. I love that. He's telling a very amazing story. And then there's this interesting cultural approach to the music. And I don't find it to be cultural appropriation. No. Appreciation. Appreciation. He had somebody from Senegal come sing the backup. Yes, that's the distinction. That's the distinction between that and say Africa by Toto. Since you brought it up, I want to play a little bit of the backing vocals because they're fantastic. It's a cool sound. It's a beautiful song. The lyrics are just so gorgeous. I think we really all deserve to see ourselves the way that the people who love us see us. Because I think a lot of the time we... We're our own worst critic, obviously. So going back to the last song, we don't. Right. Exactly. So we don't necessarily always see ourselves in the best light. Now, the way I listened to this album, this was the closing track. I can confirm (laughs) it is perfect as a closing track. I I can't imagine not having it as the closing track. Now, I own this on CD. So this was one where I didn't have side A, side B, like we would on a vinyl album, right? We talk about Mm. that all the time. But if you had a vinyl copy of this, and this was the first song on side two, you'd be happy. And this is the picture is a suitable closing, the way it ends. If not an odd choice for a closing track, you know? Yeah, if not an odd choice, but it does musically work as a closing track. And so I never really gave it any thought. And until I read that, 
Here's the great thing about it. We've had many conversations about sequencing on this podcast, the the most extensive of which was probably the last episode we dropped, right? (laughs) And I like that exercise. So to hear that this guy stewed over this and had to make a decision because of the sonic quality of vinyl in 1986. Yeah, so bizarre. I'd never heard that before, that bass sounds better on the outer edges of vinyl than the inner edges of vinyl. Is it because the outer edges can vibrate up and down more? Yes. It's because there's more flexibility on the outer edge than there is on the inner edge. Isn't that crazy? That is such a strange confluence of music and physics and technology. That is so fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to, you know, people talking about, oh, music sounds different on vinyl than it does on CD. This is one of the reasons it does. It's a physical material. So it's subject to the laws of physics. I know just the fact that a piece of acetate or vinyl could go with a needle and pick up like that whole thing blows me away to begin with. Right. I know. So now we're, are we moving on to track five, six? I mean, uh, yeah, your track six, my track five, mercy street. Looking down on empty streets. All she can see. Other dreams all made soft, other dreams made real. All of the buildings, all of the cars were once just a dream in somebody's head. She pictures the broken glass, pictures the steam, she pictures the soul with no leak at the scenes. Take the boat out, wait out. This, although it is one of the slower songs on the album, because it is one of the more traditional (laughs) songs and one of the less experimental ones, I really enjoy it. I think it's a beautiful song. His voice sounds fantastic in this song. He's really showing his vocal chops in this one. It's a pretty song, I think. It does have some of those world rhythms in it. Very cool sounding. It's a long one too. The long song. It is a long song, but I think it's because it's a very slow tempo. And this is the one you remember last episode when I was talking about the vocal range of Corey Chisel reminding me of Peter Gabriel. Yeah. This is the track in particular. There was a song on the Corey Chisel album early in the album that really made me think of this particular song. There's something about that raspy register of the voice, and they're in the same vocal range uh, for this particular song. I've always liked this song. I didn't realize that it's based on a series of poems by a woman named Ann Sexton who suffered from depression. I think there might even be a play that she wrote called Mercy Street, but she was working on a book of poems and she'd written something called Mercy Street 45 or something like that around the time that she died. And she had multiple suicide attempts and ultimately successfully had taken her own life. It's a merging of that. And Peter Gabriel had a flight. He was on a flight. They had an issue with their landing gear and they flew out over the Pacific to just jettison a bunch of fuel. They were trying to get to Rio de Janeiro, if I'm remembering this correctly. Anyway, they jettisoned the fuel. He was completely freaked out by this. Everybody on the plane thought they were going to die. Like it was that bad. And part of the rhythm of this, the Brazilian rhythms in this is part of that. He wrote this song when he got to Brazil 
after that experience. Oh. But again, it's another song. The album only has nine songs on it. This is the third one where we can legitimately talk about mental health issues, right? I didn't dive into the lyrics, but you bringing up how In Your Eyes might have been about his relationship with God sort of throws this song in a new light and knowing that story. I mean, mercy is obviously a big religious word relates to forgiveness and forgiving yourself for things. And that relates to in your eyes, in my opinion, the people who love you or the God who loves you, as it were, can see beyond the things you've done, can give you mercy, can give you forgiveness. And especially if he wrote this after a near-death experience, that's got to be pretty religious. Yeah, thanks for telling that story. Again, I didn't dive into the lyrics, but even just the title and the few lyrics I was able to glean from listening to it, it throws them into a new light for me. So that's really cool. I just pulled this up to underscore. Gabriel became interested in the late American poet Anne Sexton after reading the anthology To Bedlam and Partway Back. He dedicated So's sixth track to her, calling it Mercy Street after 45 Mercy Street, a poem released in another posthumous collection. Oh, wow. She suffered apparently from bipolar disorder. So she was a troubled writer and all this stuff is laid bare in her poetry. Yeah. So that really uh, was something that inspired him to write this particular song. And you could feel that in the lyrics. Yeah. You really can. Yeah. Wow. What a great story. What a downer. Let's review this beer. (laughs) Heck yeah. Now let's drink a downer. <laughs> let's, uh, man, get me out of that funk. This is going to be another high scoring beer for me because it's quite possibly my favorite hazy IPA that I've ever had. Really? Yeah. It doesn't taste like a hazy IPA to me. It has just enough hops that you know you're drinking beer, but it is super easy to drink. It is super passion fruit, very light. I could drink a ton of these on the beach, by the pool. I mean, give it a 4.0. I'm going to give it a 4.0 as well. I'm with you. But I think it's the category. I think this is what a hazy IPA is, meaning that the fruit juice truncates the hops. I think that most IPA drinkers probably would want the hops to not truncate as early as they do in this beer. But that is a huge plus for me. Yeah, but that's why I like this category as a separate category. So let's be clear. I like IPAs and I like hops and I can enjoy them for what they are. And then I like these for different reasons and I can enjoy these for what they are. I don't think of this category like I would a traditional IPA and I try to rate within that. I will be honest with you. These are easier to drink than traditional IPAs. Like you said, oh, I could sit somewhere and have quite a few of these. They taste very good. And uh, I agree with you. This is an easier drinking beer than a super strong traditional IPA. I would just like to say I went and dug up some data and I would like to say that my assertion that this is my favorite hazy IPA ever is somewhat borne out by the data. I rated this a 4.0. I have exactly one beer I have ever rated higher than that in the category of New Englander hazy IPA. And that is called Spork by Swamphead Brewery. So of course, Swamphead wins out again. But other than that one, which I gave a 4.25, And this one, which I gave a 4.0, I have never given another hazy or New England IPA above a 3.75. So let's move on to beer number three, another uh, hazy India pale ale called Pog Hazy, a tribute to Hawaii's favorite juice. This Pog brew is loaded with local passion fruit, orange, and guava. Hewell Melon, Southern Cross, and Citra Hops bring delicate notes of grapefruit and melon, resulting in a beer we can only describe as, well... Juicy. Let's have a taste. So my first impression of this is 
I find this to be similar to the last one. I would give it a little bit of an edge. I think I like this one a little bit more because the fruit flavor is a little more complex. I agree with you. It is similar to the last one. I think the hops linger a little longer at the end. I think the mix of juices is actually, in my opinion, giving this one a bit of a disadvantage because I can't separate the fruits from one another. It is a tasty blend, but I like to be able to identify what I'm drinking. I agree that you can't pick out the individual fruits. I think this is incrementally sweeter than the last one, but I have a feeling I'm going to give it the same rating as the last one. So that takes us, I think, to track seven. Your track seven, (laughs) my track six. I have this as big time. I have it as big time also. Oh, excellent. Let's hear a little bit of that. My first favorite song on the album. My second favorite song. I love this song. I have such a complicated relationship with it because on the surface, it is such a fun song. So upbeat. I mean, I'm bopping around. I'm dancing. The story I wanted to tell you earlier is that, as we know, we've brought this up on the podcast before. I play in an adult co-ed kickball league (laughs) here in Gainesville. (laughs) Just a little hobby of mine. (laughs) And recently the topic came up of walk-up songs. So in baseball, like the song that you want to play as you're walking up to the plate to like get you hyped up for performing, you know, and this is my walk-up song (laughs) because it gets me hyped. But the lyrics are satirical. If you did not read them as satirical, I think this would be a perfect rally song for former President Donald Trump. Well, yeah. So you have to go back in time. I can do this and you can't, right? The 80s was all about me, not me personally, but of course, everybody thinking the world was about them as an individual. That was the Reagan administration. And I think this was a satirical look at the me generation of the Reagan administration. Everything's getting bigger. Yeah. Cars are getting bigger. And my bank account. Right. It's really a cleverly written song. It's so clever. It's the most political song on the album, I think. I just love this song. I think it's genius. It's so good. My favorite lyric on the entire album is in this song. And it's, and I will pray to the big God as I kneel in the big church. How perfect is that line? It's just so on point. But I wanted to draw the connection about that. You said, oh, it's the perfect song for Trump. 
Trump was a child of the 80s. Yeah, sure. His decade was the 80s because of the politics of the 80s. But my point was that Trump would hear this song unironically. Of course. He's a big man with all his big plans. Everybody with a simple mind would hear this as a song about that. (laughs) But it's so funny and it's so satirical. And the other line that I think could be interpreted in sort of like a way that makes me uncomfortable if I didn't pick up that this is satire is the place where I come from is a small town. They think so small. They use small words, but not me. I'm smarter than that. If you read that sincerely, I think the whole trope of small town, dumb hicks, I think that is so played out. I mean, it's just wrong. It's inaccurate and it's disrespectful. But I understand the point he's trying to make knowing that it's satire. I don't think he was speaking as much about the small towns as the people who leave the small towns and don't expand their horizons when they move to the big towns. This is a guy who left a small town mocking small town values right? because he's smarter than that when he actually isn't. It's so smart. It's so fun. Yeah, it's really great. It's great writing. The second part of my walk-up song story (laughs) relates to Sledgehammer. This is why I thought I was going to tell this story after Sledgehammer. I was discussing with someone and I said, you know, my walk-up song is Big Time by Peter Gabriel. And they were like, what about Sledgehammer? And I was like, Sledgehammer is far too sexy for baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Baseball, not a sexy sport. (laughs) Absolutely not. But the other half of what we do here is drink and baseball is a good drinking sport. So yeah, so this is my favorite song on the album. I think it's brilliant. Cool. I think it's fun. Makes me dance. The fact that it starts with just a sort of out of the blue robotic sounding hi there. Hi there. Like, it just cracks me up every time. So anyway, I have no negative words about this song. It's a perfect song. Just so you know, it was the fourth single from the album. So the singles were, you know, he released Sledgehammer in April of 86. In Your Eyes in September of 86. Don't Give Up in October of 86. Big Time in March of 87, Around My Vacation that we talked about earlier. And then Red Rain was released as a single in July of 1987. So there were five singles on this album. Wow. He really stretched it out. We've talked about this before, right? Yeah. Singles drive album sales. And so if the album is, is continuing to sell they'll continue to put singles out. So when you see an album that's got more than three singles, that's a long-lived album on the charts because they're just putting stuff out. So let's move on then to track eight. Your track eight, my track seven, and this is called We Do What We're Told, and the subtitle is Milgram's 37, and that is a very important subtitle that I'm sure will factor heavily into our discussion of the song.
almost an instrumental song. Yeah. It's not really an instrumental song, but they just repeat a few lyrics almost in a chanting sort of way. So I had to look up Milgram's 37 because my first assumption was that it was a brand of whiskey. Oh, Milgram's 37 must be his liquor of choice. You know how like scotch will have like a number in it for like how many years it's been aged or the year of the vintage or whatever. And I looked it up and it's a reference to the Stanley Milgram experiments where he, and this, these experiments are actually really misinterpreted a lot of the time. It's interpreted as why people follow authority, even when they know they're doing something wrong. So this is not what this podcast is about, but just a quick summary. Stanley Milgram had these experimental subjects in a room with a control panel, and they had someone who was part of the study telling them to shock a third person who was also part of the study. So just to be clear, they're studying the person with the controller. They're studying the person with the controller. So the authority figure who is in on the experiment tells the study participant to increase the shock level and shock the person in the room who's hooked up to all these apparatuses. And they're an actor. So they're screaming, but they're not actually being shocked. And the authority figure is telling the study participant to keep going higher, keep going higher, keep going higher. The control panels above a certain level is like very dangerous, like can cause death. And eventually the study participant knows they are doing harm to this person, but they continue to do it anyway. And it's interpreted as we listen to authority because authority is authority. But in reality, there were so many iterations of this experiment It really is not a hard and fast conclusion that people listen to authority because authority is authority. And a lot of people use this experiment as like explanation for why the Nazis did what they did. But that's not really the interpretation. It's way more nuanced (laughs) than that, of course. The 37 that is referenced in the subtitle is a reference to 37 out of the 40 study participants in the original experiment turned the dial up to a point that could kill the person that they were shocking. They were willing to kill another human being because they were told to. And that is an, a very obvious title to give a song in which you just say, we do what we're told. We do what we're told. We do what we're told to do. I didn't pay any attention to that until we did this podcast. So much like you, I had to go, well, what is that about? First of all, I misinterpreted it. I heard milligrams 37. Oh. I thought this was going to be about some sort of in the context of their song, psychiatric drug. Oh, interesting. We do what we're told. We're controlled by medication, mm-hmm. but it's a different psychological experiment. It's exactly what you described. It's telling people it's okay to torture other human beings because this authority figure said it's okay. 37 out of 40 people shock somebody to death theoretically, because somebody else over their shoulder told them it was okay. If that doesn't describe January 6th, I don't know what we're talking about. There was a group of people who did what they were told. Exactly. And I certainly hope the people who told them what to do are held accountable for that because it's the authority figures in this experiment that are the problem, not the people. If you really read about all of the experiments, not just this first iteration, you realize that it's not just the authority figure that's the problem. People have a lot more agency than was found in this original iteration of this experiment. It is not all the authority figure's fault. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's not all the authority figure's fault. 
But what we're doing right now is we're holding the 37 accountable without holding the authority figure accountable. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And that that's obviously a mistake as well. And that's not fair either. The other thing I like about this song, by the way, just getting off on other things, is there's a real heartbeat kind of drum. Good call. You, you had talked about a heartbeat in the last one about reducing your heart rate as a meditation. This has got a similar thing to it. There's a real heartbeat to this one, too, in the percussion. Yeah. And when I hear the music of it, I get a vibe of marching in stride. That's sort of, and I, I don't want to throw the word Nazi around. Like, no, but yeah, you're totally right. It made me think of the scene from The Lion King. <laughs> the Lion King, you're so right. For people who don't know, in The Lion King, there's a scene where the hyenas all start to march in stride. They're being told by the villain of the film, Scar, to march <laughs> And, and it's a very Nazi or fascist reference in the film when they start marching, literally goose-stepping. They're goose-stepping, yes. But when I hear this, it's a more mellow thing, but it's that goose-step. There's a pattern yes. to it that makes me think about that scene in The Lion King. What it made me picture, and speaking about 80s, do you remember that Apple commercial that is based on 1984 and everyone's just in their spots, just like robotically. And then the guy comes in and he throws something at the screen and a it hammer, shatters. Right? And it, a hammer, a hammer at a, a sledgehammer. Could it have been a sledgehammer? And so he shatters in. Everyone is free. That's what it made me picture. It made me picture all the people like in line. We do what we're told. Having had that long deep discussion about we do what we're told it's my least favorite song on the album yeah no like i understand <laughs> why it is i get it i had to go read about it to figure out how deep it was but when you just listen yeah. to it as a song on a record it's like eh. it's my second least favorite so it's number eight on my list and if i didn't have such an intense aversion to don't give up this would have been my least favorite too but it has a pretty cool story behind it. Great story. Which takes us to, in some of our albums, the last song, and some of our <laughs> albums, the penultimate track. Your track nine, my track eight. And this is, this is the picture, subtitle, Excellent Birds. For me, other than the one we just listened to, this is like those two are the top two experimental songs on this album. But this song, I love the flute. First of all, I think the flute solo is so cool. There's multiple flute solos throughout the song. So he gets to show his woodwind chops multiple times. This song, it's silly. The lyrics are simple. To me, it sounds like he's just describing a painting and the things that are happening in the painting. Everything he's seeing is excellent. And like, he's just like really into it. But every time someone to me says anything is excellent, 
in conversation, or if I get an email that says something is excellent, I always go excellent beer or like, (laughs) I always whisper it, whatever they're describing as excellent. I always have to follow it up with excellent art excellent food. I've started doing that in life because this song is so amusing to me. I've always liked this song. It's so bizarre. (laughs) Now, remember, I always thought it was the end of the album and I always thought it was a good closer just because it's experimental. It's got a defined ending. I'm with you. I always thought he was describing either a photograph or a photographer out taking photographs. I couldn't really, in my Mm -hmm. head, figure out which of those two the story was about. But that imagery is always appealing to me as somebody who likes to take a picture now and again. I just always thought it had a cool sound to it. So the, the vocalist on here is Laurie Anderson. And I don't know a lot about Laurie Anderson. She's an American musician who is kind of an avant-garde artist from, I'm pretty sure, the New York scene. And so this is her song. She wrote this. Oh, wow. He decided like 48 hours before the album was going out. He's like, I want this on the album. This was a tag on. Huh. So in the structure of the album, what's so weird is I can almost think in his head that because he couldn't put his other song at the end of the album, he didn't want to end with, we do what we're told, right? Right. So this ends up popping in. So this was this collaboration between him and Laurie Anderson. She was an electronic music pioneer, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, I'm listening to this thing in the late 80s, and this is a very interesting, fun, cool album. A lot of introspective lyrics on it, but musically kind of challenging in the sense that it's of the 80s, but not the 80s. If you kind of follow that, it's born out of what the 80s sounded like, but it's not a definition of what the 80s were musically. It's like taking what was available in the 80s and making a piece of art that stands above that. And I've always thought this was a great album because of that. I I agree with what you're saying. I mean, the song you said, and maybe it's just because it's 2022 now, but it sounds almost like a satire of avant-garde songs. Modern art has been around for so long that it has become a satire of itself. And I feel that way about this song. I mean, the lyrics, falling snow, excellent snow. That is so funny. It's so silly, but I enjoyed this song for what it is. It's not a skip. It's to me, it's a funny song. It's not an interesting thought provoking song. All that being said, as a soundscape, I like it. And in the context of this album, it works. And for me, this always worked as a final song because of that. So overall, what's your assessment of the album? I really like this album. Even when I felt 100% ready to record this and I had taken all my notes and I had done everything I needed to do and I knew this album back and front and I didn't need to listen to it again, but I would listen to it. I really like it. It took me a while because some of the stuff is so experimental and because of the reactions I had to some of the songs, but now I love it. I really do. Good. I Of all his albums, this is probably my favorite because I think it is musically both of its time and better than that. You know, I think the 80s for me, sadly, both a good and a bad, is that we responded to singles because of that. We were the MTV generation, really. And we got fed singles that made us go explore albums. I'm sure there are tons of people who bought this album because of Sledgehammer. And you didn't get sledgehammer times nine you got a very varied experimental digital age album yeah we have a couple things that we need to do to wrap this up i think let's start with beer three we must rate our final beer pog hazy i think right i'm going with my gut 
this is marginally better than the last one, only because it's slightly sweeter, but it's essentially the same rating. I'm going with a four. For me, this is marginally less good than the last one, but it is not a quarter of a point less good. Oh, welcome to my world. So I'm going to give it a (laughs) 4.0. We rated it the same for different reasons. And that for me was three 4.0s. Yeah, and I gave the first one a 3.75 and the other two fours. So another good day. Good selections. Great album. Yeah, good app. (laughs) So I'm impressed that we, we had to buy these beers locally and basically cans. As opposed to going to the brewery or buying yeah, 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 you know, yeah. special can releases and all this kind of stuff we do. These are yeah, things Hawaii that Hawaii is not in the travel budget yet. Not currently. <laughs> untapped. We need we we need that sponsorship untapped. I'm impressed by these beers. I'll be honest I am with as you. Well. And yeah. uh I would love to check this place out. We have to do a Hawaii trip at some point. I might even be able to talk mom into that. All right. So that's the beer situation. Maui Brewing, great selections. We have uh, two things. I need an album from you. Before you introduce me to the album, let's remind everybody that next weekend is our first Jukebox release. Woohoo! We'll be reviewing the Pretenders album, Pretenders. Did I get that right? It's Pretenders yes. by the Pretenders, Pretenders. by the Pretenders and drinking beer from Chapman's Brewing Company and both the album and the beer were suggested by my uncle, your brother-in-law. Todd Sider. So he will be making an appearance on the podcast. We're very, very excited. And we can't wait for you all to hear our first jukebox episode. So that's two Fridays from now. Four Fridays from now, it will be my next album selection. And dad, that will be Modern Love by Matt Nathanson. Uh, Modern Love by Matt Nathanson. Hmm. Ring any bells at all? I have heard some Matt Nathanson singles on Sirius. Yes, I'm quite confident of that. Yep. I don't know if I heard those on the Spectrum or the Coffee House. If I were a betting woman, uh, I would put money on the Coffee House. He's more okay. of a Coffee House guy. He's a singer-songwriter. The very first Matt Nathanson song I ever heard was called Car Crash, and I heard it on Sirius. Again, I can't recall the channel, but Car Crash is on his uh, first album, some Mad Hope. I'm a fan of that album, too. I could have easily picked that album, but I like Modern Love just marginally better. And as you know, we're continuing my Closed Door series. So this is another album that I got into in high school that you may have heard songs from through my closed bedroom door. Also, as a fun aside, Matt Nathanson just released a single with Brett Denon, of all people, What called Junk Life. I'm just obsessed with it. I've been playing it on repeat. It's such a fun song, such a great song. And it's just like the confluence of two of my favorite artists just singing together. It's very cool. My recollection of what I remember of the Matt Nathanson stuff is that they would be very similar. Yeah, they're both in that singer-songwriter category. But Brett, you know, Brett Denon has a very distinct voice. Matt Nathanson, in my opinion, kind of just sounds like generic white dude (laughs) singer-songwriter. I mean, his music is good, but like his voice, you can't tell his voice from Adam, in my opinion. Is that everything? We covered the beer. We covered the jukebox. When we covered the new album. We did. Oh, how sad. It's time to leave. Well, if you can't wait for another Pops on Hops episode and you need more Pops on Hops content in your life, you can follow us on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod. You can leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. There's a link in the show notes to do that. Or you can visit our website where we post bonus content, such as photos and videos relevant to our biweekly episodes. 
As always, our jingles are by Pete Co. You can follow him on Twitter at Pete Co. VO. And on behalf of Hops and Pops, we'll see you next time. I want to be your bartender. Why don't you drink my beer? Oh, I want to be your bartender. Let there be no doubt about it. Bear. Bear. <laughs> Bye there. <laughs>